name is Jordan, and uh, I'm here as an uh, uh, apprentice pastor um, and excited to join you uh, this morning in, in the preaching of God's Word. Um, if you were here at the beginning of the month, um, actually, before I begin, I'll just give an apology for the doors opening late. We had both breakers blow on either side of the room, which meant all the power and the uh, audio system and so on. Um, about a minute before we were going to open them, there's just a popping sound. So we apologize for that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, to begin, uh, at the beginning of the month, I preached a couple of sermons on our church's vision, asking how the gospel shapes, you know, what do we see for ourselves and ourselves within our city and the people of our city? How does the gospel shape our vision? And so that was our, 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 our series on the vision of the church. And in it, I articulated that our vision as Church 21, that we exist to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all people, anticipating his return. And so now we're moving into a series called Everyday Jesus, in, in which we're unpacking that vision. We're unpacking how do, how do we get Jesus involved, you could say, in the nooks and crannies of everyday life? How does he impact and redeem, you know, the mundane parts of life, but the not so mundane parts as well? And so we looked at everyday Jesus in the city and uh, everyday Jesus uh, with regards to our neighbor. And then we had everyday finances. That was Dwight last week. And then this week we're looking at everyday mercy and justice. Everyday mercy and justice. And I'll say right up front that this is obviously a, a huge topic. Um, it, was, it was a bit intimidating to think, what can, I, what can I possibly say in 35 minutes on a topic like this? And of course, I'm not speaking to you as you know, a professional counselor, uh, you know, a politician, a, a lawyer, um, or even a professor, right? I'm a, I very much am I'm a pastor and a green bean one at that. And so I have this very limited vision. But what it, I can do as someone trying to rightly handle the word of God as a pastor is to bring you not into my limited vision, but into God's greater vision, his vision for mercy and justice in this world. And so while my view might be limited, God's view is not, right? And that's something that I can be certain of, even though I'm not always certain of the specifics, how to apply exactly mercy and justice in a given situation. So you can take confidence in that. So mercy and justice. You don't have to go far uh, to find examples in our society. We live in a culture that is deeply concerned about justice. Friday's climate march the climate strike, right? From getting up in the morning, there was school children marching by my house ready to join what was estimated to be 300,000 was more like 500,000 was reported. Um, marching through the streets of our city, right? An internationally galvanized youth effort. It wasn't just here, it was around the world. And Why? Well, I checked their website for a statement to demand an, a an end to the age of fossil fuels and climate justice for everyone. To demand an end to the age of fossil fuels and climate justice for everyone. And that was actually the chant as um, the, the, the kids from the high school down the road marched by my house. What do we want? 
We want climate justice. When do we want it? We want it now, again and again as they passed by. And I'm sure some of us uh, were there. But notice this idea of justice, this idea of responsibility. It's a just climate justice. We view it as a, as a, as a moral issue, as a justice issue. And so I want to just uh, dig into that a little bit. Of course, as Christians, we agree, like Andrew was praying in his, his prayer, that we do have a moral responsibility to care for our creation. But let's unpack this. Volcanoes emit CO2. We don't hold them as morally responsible. Cows, they emit methane. We don't hold them as morally responsible. We don't put cows in jail behind bars. You know, a lion eats a zebra. That's not a problem, right? We don't hold animals as morally responsible, but we do hold humans as morally responsible. My friend um, Andy was telling me about a nature documentary he watched, and it was, it was this tragic shot, a polar bear eating its young. And he wanted to explain that, well, polar bears, they only eat their young when they're in situations of intense distress. And this polar bear was in, they explained, intense distress because its climate was changing, its environment was changing. And then they went on to show how humans have an impact on the environment. And so notice, for a polar polar bear eating its young, isn't it interesting how we say humans are morally responsible for that? Humans are morally responsible for the polar bear eating its young. And there's a reason we do that. There's a reason we make that connection. What is that? It's that you and I are made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. So I'm going to take us through this topic of mercy and justice today. So through it, I'll call it the four G's. And the first one will be good. It's like four acts in a drama. What does God have to do with this, you ask, though? You were made in the image of God. What does he have to to do with this? Well, as Christians, we believe that there is a sovereign God who defines himself as goodness itself. That is his very nature, love and joy and peace. And yes, mercy and justice. And it's actually with these attributes that he has created us. Created us to be, as he says, image bearers, his representatives in this world. You see this right in the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis 127. So God created man, kind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so it's from this verse. The image of God. We entail from this connection uh, and representation. Two things. Connection and representation. I'll just unpack those. This helps us set us up for this entire um, time today. What do I mean by connection? Well, when I was young, I used to like, you're going to learn something new again about me. I used to like to collect coins. Um, and going to my grandparents' house was a great time to engage in my coin collecting because They're old, right? And so they would go out, and I would go rummaging through their drawers looking for the oldest discarded coins that I could find, you know, quarters, nickels, and dimes. And sometimes I would find them, and they were were so beat that you could hardly recognize the the face of the, the queen, or if it was even older, the king, right, stamped on it. But what was it that didn't change? It didn't matter if the coin was discarded. It didn't matter if that face had nearly faded. Why? Because the value of the coin was indestructible because the image of the king had been stamped onto it. And so it is with you. God says that you 
and I have, we have eternal value stamped into us. And it doesn't matter what someone has said to you. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter if you have been discarded in that sense, that you have a special connection with God and therefore you have a value. This is what it means to be made in the image of God, an image of the sovereign creator, king, both male and female together, both with that indestructible, equal value. And then, therefore, we, are, we deserve to be treated with fairness and respect. Notice what happens, of course, if I, if I drop God from the equation, right? It's like dropping out the state from behind the coin. What happens? It loses its value. And so this is why we talk about God being the foundation or the basis of human value. And so being, image, being made in the image of God then is this idea of special connection, this idea of value. But it's also what I said of representation. So if special connection is about value, intended representation is about purpose, that you and I are purpose to represent the mercy and the justice of God into this world. The picture that is given of this at the beginning of the Bible is that of, of gardening, right? To take dominion and to subdue. Of course, this isn't in the sense of exploiting, not at all. This is in the sense of actually taking care of creation, taking care of creation and everything in it in a just and a merciful way, like little kings and queens in service of a sovereign God and king, extending the beauty of the garden outwards. And so this vision, this is a just vision. It's a vision of extending justice. It's also a good vision, our first G. And so if I was to answer that question, why do humans have moral responsibility instead of animals? Well, it's because responsibility, as you can now see, it flows out from being made in the image of God. And if you take away that moral responsibility, you actually end up violating the value of humanity associated with it. Those two things, they go together. Isn't that striking? And so you and I, we're purposed to represent the justice. We're purposed to represent the mercy of God outwards into this world. And yet, that isn't always what we experience, is it? Not at all. There are countless injustices. I started by touching on one. But the more that I I thought about it, the more overwhelming it became. What about the clothes on my back? Right? Were they produced by child slavery in a foreign country? What about some of the shops that I walked by and coming into the theater this morning? Are there child sex slaves locked behind those doors last night? What about the phone in my pocket? Was that made by workers who were paid not even a living wage? And justice, it's all around us. Right? It's not just the products we use. It's the services that we use too. Huge services. Amazon, Google, Facebook. You start to dig into these and you find it, you begin to expose deep, deep injustice. And you begin to get this sense. There's this omnipresent sort of sense that the, the moral fabric of our universe has been deeply, deeply torn. And so how do you respond? 
Maybe you've learned to tune it out. Maybe it's become so distressing to you that you've just shut your ears to the problems. Or maybe you're living in a state of distress. Kind of two ways that we go about dealing with it. But no matter where you are, what I want you to to first start by realizing is that no matter how much you do or you don't care about justice, that God does care about it, and he cares about it a whole lot more than you do. He cares about justice deeply. The biblical word for justice is mishpat, and this is a word that comes up hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. You could say, in a sense, the whole Bible is a story about the injustice of man. And about how God works to set things right again. God describes himself as a God of justice. I'll point out a few. Isaiah 30 and 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Or this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so we have a God of justice, like we saw. And he calls us to represent him into this world, not to tune out, but to do justice. And we see this many times, like this. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give your testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Or Leviticus 19, do not pervert justice Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Or this, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Do not take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. I could have easily brought up another 50 passages from scripture like this, both in the Old and the New Testament. And of course, there's the verse that we read today, a sort of summative verse. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? God calls us to do justice. And when the Bible speaks of justice again and again, there's these same four groups that keep coming up. They were in these verses that I just read. There was the poor, the widow, the foreigner, and the fatherless. The poor, the widow, the foreigner, and the fatherless. Why did these four groups keep coming up again? Well, because these groups were the most marginalized. They were the most vulnerable in the ancient world. They're the ones who they didn't have in these societies. They didn't have the social support. They didn't have the economic uh, stability. And so they were always the ones who were just days away from, from death, by, death by starvation or death by exploitation or death by violence. And what we find is that God actually judges the justness of a society by how it treats these people. God actually judges the justness of a society by how it cares and treats for these people. How do you think then that God would judge us? How do you think God would judge our society? In the book of Micah, this whole book is actually a response to Israel's injustice to the vulnerable and the marginalized. 
We're going to be studying this book in detail in our next series, going chapter by chapter. But in short, in this book, like we, and we saw in this, in, in this chapter, right? God reminds his people how in the past he's brought them out of oppression. He's bl- brought them out of the slavery of Egypt in his mercy. And yet as time passes, something happens. A tide reverses, right? Those very people who have been brought out, the rulers of Israel, they begin to cheat and to steal and to accept bribes and they favor the rich and the powerful and they exploit their workers. All of these things are highlighted in the book. And so that tide, it happens, that thing we see in history again and again and again, where the oppressed become oppressors. And God says to them in chapter 3 and 9 that they detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. They detest justice. They make crooked all that is straight. And so what does he do? He takes them to the court of his absolute justice. In Micah 6, 2, he says, it says, Hear, you mountains, the indictment, or the, that could be the case or the charge of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. He will contend with Israel. Israel has been tried and has been found guilty. It's as if the gavel has come down, the the verdict has been pronounced. And are we any different? This would be our second G, guilty. Yes, yes, times have changed. But this hasn't changed that much, has it? This hasn't changed that much. And you say, well, in a sense, it's care for the vulnerable and the marginalized. That's common sense, isn't it, Jordan? And I say, yes, yes, my friend, but you, you grew up in a post-Christian society. Where do you think your common sense came from? That wasn't always the case. And even at that, some of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our society are still the homeless and the refugee and the orphan and the single mother. And so God, he continues to call us to seek justice and mercy to represent him, even actually, and this is very important to say, even if this is the situation by which you identify yourself or the situation by which you are characterized by. I know, for example, of a single mother in our congregation this week who welcomed a vulnerable, homeless woman into her home while she's getting her feet under her. They met at Tim Hortons. Even if this is your situation, we actively seek the good of the vulnerable and the marginalized. And I'm speaking to myself. This wasn't a, a nice message to prepare. It was a deeply convicting message to prepare. Being exposed to the justice and mercy of God begins to expose something within ourselves. And so what stops us from doing this? What stops me from doing this? Well, the biblical answer is then that rather than letting God determine justice for us, rather than letting God determine good and evil, we have tried to determine good and evil for ourselves. And this is what is represented in the biblical picture of the tree of the knowledge, or you could say the determination of good and evil that we've taken of it. We've indulged in it. And the fruit of that tree, it's, it's bad. It's bad fruit. It's the fruit of injustice, right? That, we, that when I try and determine justice, 
I inevitably end up determining it to my own advantage. And that becomes then injustice. Does that make sense? Take Bill 21 as an example. It's a law signed into force in our province. A law uh, recently, a law signed into force that restricts the, f- the freedom of uh, public religious expression. That public service workers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, bus drivers, anybody employed in the public service sector are um, barred from having any visible outward religious symbol on them, right? This includes the Muslim hijab. This includes uh, the Jewish kippah, a Sikh turban. And so why is it then that so many Christians have been silent about this law? (laughs) Is it that? I think it's something like this, right? That wearing an outward religious symbol like a cross is not an obligation for Christian, at least not in the same ways as it is for our Jewish, our Muslim, and our Sikh neighbors. And so it ends up affecting them more than it affects us. And so because it doesn't affect them in the same way it affects us, it's just easy for us to remain silent. It's easy for us to just champion the causes of justice that affect us and just turn the blind eye to the ones that don't. This is deeply convicting. And so you can see how when we try and determine what is just for ourselves, our our view of justice so easily, so quickly becomes me-centered about us advantaging ourselves rather than being God-centered. Being God-centered would mean it would be for the good of all people. And so we need then, you can see the importance of it, to let God determine what is just. This is why it's so important that we're hearing, we're listening, we're interpreting, we're teaching the revelation of God, the Bible, his speech. It matters. This is why biblical justice, mishpat, matters. That word for mishpat is actually quite holistic. I actually, we, I think we miss this, right? We often think about justice as, uh, I receive the due penalty for the things I've done wrong. You know, I'm, I'm greedy, uh, I've stolen something. Justice is me getting the penalty of that. And that's true. That's a true sense of justice. But that's a negative sense of justice. That's just sort of a neg- that's just avoiding committing injustice. But there's also a positive sense to justice. This is justice that seeks to restore. This is doing justice. It's not that... De- We're just not to harm the widow and the poor and the fatherless and the orphan. No, they don't just sort of float there in some sort of neutral space. We can't just stand by and watch as they fall into holes in the moral fabric. No, no, we have an obligation to do justice, to step in, to mend the holes. And anything less than that is sin. This is our guilt. God calls us to actively, to actually care for the vulnerable and the marginalized, to view them as having inherent value, even if discarded by society. Why? Because they have the image of God stamped on to them. And this is why, and this is how Jesus can teach like he does in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 and verse 42, can you put it forward? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. These are heavy, heavy words. They come down like a gavel on your soul and mine. And yet we still somehow think that we can justify ourselves. Justify ourselves in this passage. It describes the throne of the king of kings in all his glory. And we say, Lord, Lord, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you naked? When were you a stranger? And we didn't minister to you. And what does he answer? As you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. See, Jesus identifies with the poor, the naked, the stranger, the criminal. And he says, basically, how you treat them is how you treat me because of that special connection. They are stamped with my image. And he goes on to say this, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the awe-filled justice of God. And this is the justice that we deserve, you and I. And you say, but isn't this mercilessness? Isn't this too severe? Justice, yes, I get that. But this seems like too high of a standard. I get, I get being judged for the things that I've done, but being judged for the things that I didn't do? Yes, yes, remember justice Justice isn't ours to define, it's his to define. And he, God, is perfectly just in a way that we never can be. Perfectly just. And he's also perfectly merciful. Both of them together, fully just, fully merciful. But how can this be? How can he both punish injustice so severely and yet also be perfectly merciful as he describes himself to be? Think about it. Think about it. If you're convicted for a crime, right, and you go to be sentenced, there's sort of two basic outcomes that can happen. The judge, you can stand before the judge, and he can, he can let you off with a warning. That would be what? That would be a judge who is being merciful, merciful to you, but not just towards the victim. Or another thing can happen, right? The judge, he can convict you of the crime. That's considered just. But he's not being merciful to you. He's being just to the criminal, not merciful, uh, just to the victim, not merciful to the criminal. And so what does God do? This would be our third G, his grace. What does he do? Does he let go of some of his justice in order to show his mercy? Does he uphold his mercy and just show a little bit of justice some of the time? No. The biblical picture is that God is maximally, perfectly, fully, and both just and mercy, justice and mercy together at once. How does he do this? How does God do this? Listen, God does not exercise his mercy at the expense of his justice, but through it. He does not exercise his mercy at the expense of his justice, but through it, this is the genius of the cross of Jesus Christ. You find this. You find this at no other place in history. You find this from no other thinker in philosophy. That the cross of Jesus is, 
is God at once demanding justice for every sin and extending mercy to the sinner. That at the cross, what Jesus did, he, he bore the consequences of sin on himself. He took it on in death so that he in turn can extend mercy to you, the sinner, to everyone who believes. He can extend mercy to the sinner while extending justice for every sin. You see, God then, he, he doesn't extend his mercy at the expense of his justice, but through it. The, the cross, it displays the perfect mercy and justice of God together as one. It's as, it's, it's as if Jesus, he steps into that black hole of injustice in the moral fabric of the universe, and he covers it with the cross. He mends it with the cross so that we can be extended grace. We can be forgiven of the sins that we've committed. We can be forgiven of the injustice that we've committed. We can be forgiven of not getting involved, not doing justice, our failure to seek it. Of course, this raises a question. If we can be forgiven, if we can be continually forgiven for the times of not pursuing justice, then why should we care? Why should Christians then pursue justice if extended always forgiveness? And this is our fourth G, gratitude. It starts out by us remembering that the grace of Jesus Christ was not a cheap grace. The grace of Jesus Christ was not a cheap grace. It was a costly grace, and costly grace calls you to obedience. And so remember the costly grace of Jesus on your half, behalf. Jesus, who said, as much as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. Because Jesus, he ultimately is the one who became the least of these. On the cross, it says, he was stripped of his clothing and became naked. On the cross, his mouth was parched in suffering and he cried out, I thirst. On the cross, his closest friends and his disciples deserted him and he was left there a stranger. And on the cross, he was crucified as a common criminal. You see, he became the least of these. He became poor, naked, thirsty, a stranger, and a criminal, all for you and me. And so remember the costly grace of Jesus in forgiving you. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. And because it cost him everything, when we understand that, when we grasp that, when our hearts take hold of that, it's gratitude that takes over. Our hearts are transformed by that gratitude and that motivates us to respond with obedience. The costly grace of Jesus motivates us to respond with obedience, not out of duty, of course, but out of love for what he's done for us. And so if you ask this question, why should I pursue justice if God just forgives? Well, remember the costly grace of Jesus and remember also his commitment to you. My mind goes back to when I was dating Sandra, right towards the beginning when I first met uh, her family. We went to meet her family for the first time and we were still in the dating phase. And so in the dating phase, there's this sense of really trying to impress, right? You want the family to like you. You want her, you know, to see how much you care about 
her family. And there's a sort of pressure associated with that. I remember that pressure. But now, does being married mean that I stop caring about her family? No, not, not at all. Right? It's actually because we're in a committed relationship, because we're bound together, because we promise to forgive each other again and again. This actually leads to a deeper love. And a deeper love for Sandra means that I'll begin to love and care about the things that Sandra loves and cares about. I'll begin to love and care about the people that Sandra loves and cares about, the people that she loves. And so this is how a commitment to Jesus can begin to change you. His love can begin to reshape the very structures of your heart, transformed by gratitude, a gratitude that leads to obedience that enables us to grow in our love for mercy and justice, a love of something that he loves so much more than us, right? He loves mercy and justice, a God of mercy and justice. And so we long in gratitude, finally. We long in gratitude for the day in which God will bring justice to the nations at last. We can take heart in that. We long to see his justice. Like it says in Amos, let the justice roll down like waters and the righteousness and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus promises to come and bring that justice. He promises to come and bring it to the nations. And so how do we practice everyday justice and mercy in our lives? What I've done is I've structured this around the three parts of that verse. It's on my shirt too. <laughs> to love, to, <coughs> to do justice. Is it in the, well, I didn't put in the same act. Act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. So first, to do justice. Notice that we are <coughs> to do. It's an action. I've already tried to highlight that. I'll say it again. <laughs> Proverbs 29.7 says this. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. I actually prefer the translation I have here. (laughs) The righteous care about the justice of the poor. The wicked have no such concern. You could extend that to any marginalized or vulnerable person. The word poor in here. Righteous care about the justice of the poor. The wicked have no such concern. Do you care about the poor, the widow, the stranger, the orphan, the migrant worker, the refugee, the ex-con who can't find work, the elderly, the disabled who can't hold down employment? I mean, the list could just go on and on. Do you care about them? In his commentary on Proverbs Um, The theologian Bruce Walk says this. It's very striking. The righteous, he says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of community. Which group do you find yourself in? Are you working to the advantage of others? Are you working to the advantage of yourself? 
Are you living out of a cruciform life, a life shaped and formed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Do you bear one another's burdens? Jesus calls us to bear one another's burdens. Or do you have people bear your burdens? Do you take on other people's suffering or you do have them take on yours? Do you see this idea of bearing one another's burdens? This isn't just us getting involved out of a place of ease, out of a place of comfort, out of a place of excess. If we're really to bear one another's burdens, that means we actually take some of that suffering on ourselves. We take some of that weight on ourselves. Pursuing justice and mercy in this city is going to cost us. It will take our comfort. It will take our time. It will take our resources. It will take our talent, our treasure, all of it. And so the first thing we need to ask ourselves as part of this call to do justice is, are you willing to give up your comfort? Do you see the costly grace of Jesus for you? Do you see the commitment that he's made for you? You're actually being shaped and transformed by his love. Beginning to see and to love and to care the things that he sees, loves, and cares for. Next, when you're willing, listen. Listen. Listen and understand the justice issues around us. They're complex. That's why it takes time. Unfortunately, our headlines, our mainstream media, the way that it feeds it to us, right? It, it does it in such a way that it tries to keep us coming back, right? This idea of clickbait, right? So you consume more and more media. And it uses distress in order to keep you coming back. And so its purpose is to make you consume as opposed to, to give truth in a lot of cases. And as Christians, as long as this sensationalism drives the media, right, we're going to be having a hard time finding out what is true. And so it takes time to listen, to read the long articles, to ask people questions, to form relationships with diverse people. All of this, it takes time to listen, to find a true picture of justice. And so we listen And we ask God to make us sacrificial. And then we do justice. We engage in the work. And this might be where you get stuck. You say, I don't know what God is calling me to do. I don't know how God wants me to carry out his justice in this world. I'm unsure. We'll pray about it. But don't just stop there. Get your hands dirty. Go out. There are, there are thousands of organizations in this city seeking to do justice. Why not volunteer for one? Try it out. See if this is the call of justice that God has on your life. You don't need to start something new. What are the needs in your neighborhood? As part of our city group primer, we have this part where the people in the group take time to write out, well, what are the skills that you have? What are the experiences that you have? What are the resources that you have? Think about it. Process it. Actually put it on paper. This is a really good exercise for you to to do your experiences and skills what maybe you're good at you know home repairs maybe you're good at fixing cars maybe you're good at cooking you can cook healthy meals 
for people who don't have access to healthy food. Maybe you've been through some sort of life tragedy, a traumatic event where you can come alongside and comfort people who've been through something similar. Maybe you've had the opportunity to get a university education. You understand finance as well. And you can come alongside the person who has never had that opportunity, hasn't grown up in a family that knew how to steward money well because none of them had had that opportunity. How are you going to steward your skills, your experiences, your resources? I can think of someone in our city group. He has a car, or they, I should say, have a car and an apartment and a big garage. The big garage hosts the, the things of other people in the city group that they can't fit in their own homes. They're storing things temporarily for other people. Their apartment is open. They have an open-door policy. People are there all the time. I'm there some of the time. They host our city group some of the time. I know that they invite their neighbors in for meals, the people who live below them and beside them. Their car. I've seen them drive people around in that car many times. They've lent that car out to other people. They've used that car to ferry supplies for uh, the potluck part thing in the park that we do that I've told you about before. How are you going to use your resources? List out the resources you have. How can you use them to seek justice in this city? Dwight talked about finances last time. That's one of the resources that we have too. Finances, I read this this week, that budgets, they're not financial. They're not merely financial allocations. They're actually moral documents. Budgets are not merely financial allocations. They're actually moral documents. How are you going to seek to do justice with your finances? And so we're to do justice and we're to love mercy. Serve in your city groups. This is why we've structured our church around city groups, what we call a family of servants on mission. Servants is part of our identity because we want to see mercy and justice break out in our city and to be carried into every neighborhood and workspace, right? So, so find a way that you can serve alongside your city group. If you're already part of a service or volunteer project in the city, we're not asking you to take on something new. We're not asking you to add something additional to your schedule. But if you're not part of something, please do engage in what the city group offers you for service. Serving, I recognize, it's been one of the most challenging parts um, of getting people in the city group involved in. There's this sort of strange thing that happens, right? You don't really intend it, but there's just something that seems to come up uh, every time. Something that comes up every time, it's just more important, at least for that week, it seems. I don't know how we manage to do this, but it just doesn't seem to be a priority. We don't want to disadvantage ourselves. We don't want to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of service, for the sake of the community. But what if Jesus didn't disadvantage himself for you? What if he just stayed in heaven and said, another world, another time? That's not what he did for you. His costly grace moved him to come down, to commit himself to you right to the point of death. Make serving alongside your city group a priority. Notice the verse says to love mercy. And we don't need to do it begrudgingly. We do it in response to his grace. We don't need to do this to check off a box. Don't do it to, to just add something to your resume, right? 
God's a, God is calling us to so much more than that. He's calling us to love mercy, to, to find joy in it, to find joy in sacrificing ourselves for others. That is, I get it. <laughs> that seems sometimes distant to us. I, I read a quote this week by uh, an old Scottish theologian, and it struck me to the bone. His name was Robert Murray McChain, and he said this in 1838 about serving the poor. I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ cannot say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your haughty dwelling rises while thousands have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost, and yet you never darkened their door. I'll just stop here for a second and say, if you have never darkened the door of a home like this in our province or in our country, you have never darkened the door of the poor. There are many homes like this in our city. There are many homes like this. I've been in homes like this myself. You heave a sigh, perhaps, he says, at a distance, but you do not visit them. All my dear friends, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. You seem to be Christians, and yet you care not for the poor. Oh, what a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be no abundant entrance for you. He that soweth sparingly will also reap sparingly. I fear that there are many hearing me who now know that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. I think he nailed it in the head. It requires a new heart. Have you received that new heart? It can be given to you nothing but by the costly grace of Jesus, the one who became the least of these for you, the one who became naked, poor, a stranger, and a criminal on the cross in death. Finally, we are to walk humbly. We are to walk humbly with the Lord, our God. This means that we serve at a place of humility, that we don't serve to be served, but we also recognizing in service there is an opportunity. There's a humility that comes with allowing ourselves to be served by the people that we are serving. That we don't just come in and do everything for everyone. We allow them to serve us. Jesus allowed, if you remember, the woman at the well to first give him a drink before he offered her in return living water. He served from a place from humility. He wasn't too good to, to have that. And notice that we serve and we walk humbly. Uh, we walk humbly with the Lord. That we're walking with the Lord. That when we see his sovereign goodness and his majesty and his justice, what does that do to us? Right? That has a humbling effect. That keeps our pride unchecked. And notice it's a walk. We don't run. It's not just for a moment. It's not just a sprint. But it's a whole life lived in complete dependence on God. We walk with the Lord. Notice that it's a with. As long as you're headed in the same direction as he is, he's with you. 
Jesus talked about his yoke being easy and his burden being light. Doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly, right? These are a responsibility, a sort of yoke that Jesus places on us. But it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be hard because he is with us in it. He describes himself as a co-laborer with us in the work that we do. It's ultimately his love and his justice that motivates us. And as long as we walk with him then, he says, that our yoke will be easy and our burden will be light. And so it doesn't have to be a burden. It doesn't have to be a burden. It doesn't have to be distressing. Jesus frees us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord our God. Let's pray. Lord, would we be people like this? Would we be people who do justice, who long to see your kingdom come in this city, who don't come to be served but to serve, to give our lives up, not to our own advantage but for the advantage of others, for the advantage of our community, to be people of cruciform lives, of sacrificial hearts. Jesus, help us to be people like this. I know the coldness of my own heart, God. Would you stoke it with a flame by your spirit? Make us people who long to do justice in this city. It's not just talk, but it is action that we go out and we serve our neighborhoods, our communities, and the people around us. Jesus, help us to love mercy. Help us to love the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, the widow, the ex-con who can't find a job, the elderly, anyone, Lord, that is vulnerable and marginalized that you bring across our paths. Help us not to see them as, as just different and other and strange, but to enter in amongst them like you entered in amongst us and moved in amongst us and love them with the love that you have given us first. Jesus, we need you in this. And finally, Lord, give us the humility, the humility to walk humbly before you, with you, Jesus, we don't want to go our own direction. We want to go the direction you're taking us. We don't want to go ahead of you. We want to be right in step with your spirit. Jesus, keep us in step with you. I ask this in Jesus' name for the good of all people in our city.